Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 136 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Welcome. Woo! It's Wednesday, September 18th, 2019. And I've got you laughing already. <laughs> I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Did you see this thing yesterday that there's someone bouncing around an idea in Hollywood to remake The Princess Bride? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not down with remaking something that was perfect as done. Uh, my, my line was, uh, it would be absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable. <laughs> That's good. But um, Carrie Ells had one, too. I want to I find his tweet. He had a pretty good reaction. Um, he tweeted last night, there's a shortage of perfect m- movies in this world. <laughs> it would be a pity to damage this one. Oh, that is that is all the reasons why it was as as you there's plenty, wish. plenty of things that could use a reboot. Like, how are there? Yeah, it, let's save that for frivolity. Okay. That's a good frivolity. Things topic. that could use a reboot. Things <laughs> such podcast. as this podcast. <laughs> okay, write that down. We've got a title already. Will this, you please this capture podcast that? Podcast needs a reboot. So, so there's a lot actually going on, um, and so we have. For today's episode, we're planning one big story and a bunch of small ones. Do you want to give the the listeners a, a quick taste of, of what's coming? Yeah, we'll do a classic uh, uh, in the weeds assessment of this debate that's going on between uh, the DNI, the uh, Inspector General that passed along a whistleblower report to the DNI, and, and the, the vagaries d- of the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act. Woo! And there's a fight with Congress over whether this report gets passed on under that statute. So we're going to go into the weeds on that. Um, and then we're going to quick hit, we'll note uh, Snowden getting sued and Macmillan Publishers along with him. Uh, we will talk about the the Canadian, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP. A huge, a huge intelligence scandal north of the border. Oh, man. Um, that They told that guy to take off, eh? Sorry, couldn't resist. That's an old, old way of, what was that? Uh, strange Brew. Yes. Strange Brew, yes. yeah. Um, sorry, my Canadian friends. That was pretty lame. Um, the Henderson and Rao dissent in Kasim. Yes, this came out of nowhere yesterday since the, the rare dissent from the denial of rehearing on Bonk that no one asked for. Yeah, that's going to be pretty interesting. Um, and that that involves the question of... And by no one, I mean no party. Right. So, sua sponte, that, that involves the question of whether the uh, detainees at Guantanamo have constitutional rights other than what Boumediene recognized via the suspension clause. Yep. Um, we'll, we'll take note of a few odds and ends like the Saudi oil attack and the extent to which that, you know, if that turns out to be a causus belli, Ugh. what kind of legal issues would have to be discussed in that setting. Um, we've got an execu- a weird executive privilege claim uh, going on with Corey Lewandowski. Um, yes, apparently executive privilege now applies to people not having anything to do with the executive branch. This is part and parcel of the the – it's like telling American companies stop doing business with China without actually trying to issue an IEPA right. order that yes. might actually get you there. In this case, they can't actually get there the formal way either. We'll compare and contrast. Uh, we have a little update on the asylum ban uh, stay. The denouement in SCOTUS. It, it's, it's, not, it's, it's now uh, – well. Uh, there you go. Yeah, there you go. So uh, – and then Frivaldi, we will talk about movie reboots, I think. Now By that, the way, the, the SCOTUS dissent, you know, one of the great all-time citations I've ever seen in a SCOTUS opinion. Oh, there – I was excited to see you there. We will talk about that in our little scouting segment. We Steve, Steve's got stuff being cited before it's even in print, um, which creates this weird meta question. Like, if I now want to cite Justice Sotomayor citing my forthcoming article, yeah, there's no blue book form for that. No, there's there's a recursiveness to this. Yes. Uh, so during Fervaldi, we could also talk about the 
the oddity of the the influence that pre-publication drafts now can mm, have. Indeed. Um, and I have the, I have a view about that based on in light of my deepfakes article with yeah. Danielle Citrin. A good one or a bad one? Uh, just a good one. I mean, basically, I that thing's almost in print. Uh-huh. California Law Review. Thank you very much. You guys are awesome. Um, and obviously, the moment the publication accepts it, you get a credentialing sort of boost or, or whatever it is. You get a credit for that. Um, but the piece itself has been downloaded on SSRN over 10,000 times. Wow. So I think whatever, you know, and it, it's had a lot of impact for good or ill, I don't know, but it's had a lot of impact. And I assume that it's had most of its impact up to this point already. So the actual printing of it. Right, it's almost like anticlimactic. Yeah, it's, it really seems like uh, sort of a bit archaic, frankly. <laughs> All right, but... F- First, whistleblowers. All right, so let's start at the beginning, um, which is this all broke, what, Friday night, Friday-ish? Past few Um, days, yeah. Right, um, where um, Congressman Adam Schiff, who is the chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, HIPSI, um, released basically um, a letter that he had written to the acting director of national intelligence. uh, Was it McGuire? Joe McGuire. Joe McGuire. Right, who had been, as listeners know, he had been the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. And after Sue Gordon was removed and that issue about her succession was sidelined, uh, he was then selected as or became the uh, the the current uh, acting DNI. So, the, so 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 Schiff's letter basically clues us in to something that had thus far been playing out behind the scenes, which is apparently the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community, right, or of the what DNI, um, had received a whistleblower complaint um, under the auspices of the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act of 1998, which we will talk about. Um, really needs an acronym. It's just an initialism. It's an unpronounceable initialism. You mean you don't think you can pronounce Iquipa? I really don't think you can say Iquipa. Iquipa is not a thing. It's a thing. I'm making it a thing. Uh, I think it's more like the IC Whistleblower Act, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so um, the the Inspector General had had passed along this complaint um, to the acting director. Um, the Inspector General had apparently agreed that the complaint presented what's called an urgent concern. That's a term of art under the statute. Um, which Bobby, on my and Chairman Schiff's reading of the Intelligence Committee Whistleblower Protection Act, should have triggered a mandatory reporting requirement that the acting DNI forward the complaint to both congressional intelligence committees within seven days. Um, and Schiff was writing to complain about the fact that that had not happened. Um, and that the justifications that had been proffered by the acting DNI through his general counsel, Jason Klatenich, um were, to Schiff's view, unpersuasive, and demanding that the acting DNI make himself available for a public hearing if he did not you know, f- turn over the, the report first. So let's parse the statute a little yes. bit, and then let's talk about, you know, we can project what, we can, we can weigh in on who's got the better of the argument uh, based on our limited incomplete knowledge, but we'll weigh in nonetheless, and then we can project what might happen. So let me do a little bit of history first. I mean, so it's worth stressing that the intelligence, so the, you know, for obvious reasons, whistleblowing in the intelligence community is trickier than whistleblowing in the rest of the federal government. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right? If someone at GSA, you know, spots fraud yeah. um, or other wasteful or abuseful conduct, pretty straight, you know, pretty obvious what the right way is to sort of run it up the food chain, run it up the flagpole, you know, draw, draw attention to it. In the IC, it's much trickier because of the security clearances and the secrecy and the compartmentalization of much of the information that's presumably going to be animating any possible source yeah. of a whistleblower complaint. Um, and so Congress, it, it took decades after Congress first started creating statutory whistleblower protections for most federal employees for Congress to come up with 
Iqwipa. I'm not. I'm. It's not a thing. Um, and it, it apparently is. So it was fine. So it was, fi- it was finally enacted um, in 1998. Um, in basically, you know, President Clinton signed it, but with some reservations, which we'll talk about. And the basic idea is that instead of what would normally be a public disclosure mechanism. Um, if the whistleblower felt that he had been at he or she had been inadequately remedied by the agency, it's a complicated mechanism where it's the inspector general who um, takes the lead in basically creating a report that then goes just not to all of Congress but just to the intelligence committees. And then the statute says, and if for some reason, right, you don't have, you're not sort of, the whistleblower's complaint is not approved or properly handled by the ICIG, um, then the whistleblower, him or herself, can go directly to the intelligence committees, but only once they've complied with some special procedural requirements. Um, And a lot of this is memorialized in the PPD, the Presidential Policy Directive that the Obama administration put out, I think, in 2014. I might be off by the year. Anyway, the long and short of it is that the relevant statute is 50 U.S.C. section 3033. And if we want to be even more specific, it's 3033 subsection K. Yes, special K. Special K. That's doing most of the work. Um, And it might just help if we read it. Would that be weird? No, let's do it. So uh, if you go down, I was going to jump in at subpart five. Um, Okay, yeah. So K5 is, so so there are other, just just to put this in context, K is the reporting section. And so K1 through four are other report triggers that probably don't seem applicable to this case, right? So K5 is this case. All right, so five sub capital A, an employee of an element of the intelligence community et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, who intends to report to Congress a complaint or information with respect to an urgent concern may report such complaint or information to the inspector general. B, not later than the end of the 14 calendar day period beginning on the date of receipt from an employee, blah, blah, blah. The inspector general shall determine whether the complaint or information appears credible. Which, by the way, so can I just pause you there for yep. one second? The word credible is is doing a lot of work here. Yeah, right? talk about, unpack that. What do, you, what do you understand this sentence to be accomplishing? So I take credible to be um, deciding whether in fact, so I, th- I take credible to be a reference back to the complaint referred to in K5A, uh-huh. which is a complaint, right, or information with respect to an urgent concern. And so I think part of the credibility determination is, is it in fact a matter that triggers the definition of an urgent concern? Okay. So in, in the word, the sentence that we just read clearly identifies the IG as the official... At least the initial decision maker. It's certainly, it's at least mandating that the IG make such a determination. I suppose it doesn't say no one else has a voice in it, but it does clearly lodge that decision at least in the IG. Good. And and we know from the letters that have been released, Bobby, unless the letters are just outright false, right, which I don't think anyone's suggesting, we know that in this case, the IG, in fact, did find the complaint to be credible. Should we should we keep reading through this or should we jump ahead to the definition of no, think, urgent? Well, so so can we keep going for a second and then we can define urgent concern? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to pick it up? Do you have yeah, so yeah. upon making such a determination, the inspector general shall transmit to the director a notice of that determination together with the complaint or information. So mandatory language, right? The right. whole point of the statute is to remove discretion from the process. The IG has to actually make the make the reference Either way, Bobby. Right, and then tell the DNI what happened. Right, so dear DNI or acting DNI, right, I received this complaint. I found it, box one, credible. Box two, not credible, right? That's the, you know, but either way, he has to report under 
3033K5B. And so far, all the elements are there. We have somebody who's in scope personnel-wise who had some kind of claim that they thought constituted urgent under the meaning of the statute. They went to the IG. The IG did make the timely determination, and and then we're told, uh, agreed. Check the credible box. Check the credible box, and then passed it up to to, to, uh, DNI McGuire. Now, now why don't we pause here for you? Do you have the urgent concern definition in front of you? Uh, Give me a second. I have to scroll down for it. So this is subpart capital G. In this paragraph, the term, quote, urgent concern, close quote, means any of the following. And so there are three things listed, and I think it's the first one, I think, that we're concerned with, but I don't actually know. Because, of course, let's be clear. Nobody knows what the actual underlying concern is. And that's the whole but hold on, And that's yeah. the point. The point was the public shouldn't be aware of the source of, of the subject matter right. because this is the intelligence community it's, where it's almost certainly classified. So uh, sub one uh, it could be a serious or flagrant problem, abuse, violation of law or executive order or deficiency relating to the funding, administration, or operation of an intelligence activity within the responsibility and authority of the Director of National Intelligence involving classified information, but does not include differences of opinions concerning public policy matters. Now, there's also, it goes on to say, it could False be- False statements a, to Congress, yeah, right? or, uh, or reprisals, or uh, prohibited personnel actions. I think it's, I mean- the, the, Well, it, we know it's the first one, right? Because isn't, yeah. so let's cut to the chase. Yeah. So DNA McGuire apparently has concluded that uh, the urgent concern test actually isn't met be, by the nature of the underlying complaint. Uh, don't didn't we aren't we told that it's because in some way or fashion it involves it, whatever the alleged misbehavior yes. is involves people who are not part of the IC, but also to whom some kind of privilege might apply. And so this, of course, has you know, so you know, who are people who are not in the IC who might be protected by a constitutional privilege that would override a statutory you know reporting requirement. Hmm. Well, so okay, so first, I don't know that we're making that they're making an override claim. No, no, but the, so just, they might right. just make an interpretation claim, saying so. For example, right. this administration we know takes a very broad view of executive privilege. Yeah. it could be, it could be the president, but it could be any number of. It could be Corey Lewandowski. It could be Corey Lewandowski. Exactly. You know, it could be under, under their theory, right? It could be anybody whom they might try to cloak with executive privilege who's not in the IC, and therefore, if that were how they're looking at, it, they might say, "Hey." There may be a flagrant problem, abuse, yeah. et cetera, but it's not. And they're reading that prong right. as if it must involve something that concerns an intelligence activity within the responsibility. So there, so there, so, so there are two points to make here, right? The first is they're not actually refusing to turn over the report on a privilege basis, right? They're refusing to turn over the report because they are making Out the argument scope. you're suggesting yeah. that this is not an urgent concern right. within the meaning of 3033. K5G. Right. So there may be some whistleblower mechanism out there, but it ain't this one. Right. It's not okay. Equipa. Um, so the, the the this raises two questions, right? The first question is, um, are they right on the underlying merits of their argument that this is not a proper urgent concern? And the second question, which I think is the far more important question, is who makes that call, right? That is to say, who is the arbiter? of whether a matter is or is not an urgent concern right. for purposes of the disclosure requirements. So back to the, let's we go back to uh, K5A. Yep. Uh-huh. Um, so K5A, um, oh, sorry, K5, B. right? Yeah. B. And then we get to C, upon receipt of a transmittal from the inspector general under subparagraph B, which we all agree happened, mm-hmm. right? The director shall, within seven calendar days of such receipt, 
forward such transmittal to the Congressional Intelligence Committees together with any comments that director considers appropriate. And then there's procedures in D for the employee to proceed if they were found not credible, if their complaint was found not credible. Those are inapplicable here because it was found credible. So, you know, C's language, Bobby, to me is pretty mandatory, right? The question is whether there's any way to read the statute as allowing the acting director of national intelligence to refuse to, to turn over the report because he himself has disagreed with the inspector general's credibility determination. Yeah, that's tough. Let's parse it really slowly and carefully. So the first thing said here is in subpart C, this is 3033K 5C. Upon receipt of a transmittal from the IG under that paragraph, subparagraph B, which check, everyone agrees that that happened. He yep. received a transmittal. Yep. Um, next, the director shall seven calendar days forward such transmittal. It, it doesn't say anything in that clause about review. It, it sounds like a, a ministerial function. Yep. Um, but then there's the further clause, together with any comments the director considers appropriate. So that seems to anticipate that if, let's assume for the sake of argument that, in fact, the right reading of the urgent concern statutory provision is that, that in some way or fashion, the misbehavior really does have to be pertinent to an intelligence activity. And let's assume further that the IC employee who's in the position of whistleblowing here has seen something terrible, but it but it, it involves someone who's not IC. Maybe yeah. it's maybe it's someone else on the NSC staff. Or maybe, maybe, some, maybe it's the president. Who knows? Maybe it's someone at DOJ, right, who's not subject to oversight from the intelligence committees, but rather from yeah, the it's, judiciary it's, committees. It's a separate actor for whom there ought to be some path way, but it's not this one. Um, But let's assume that the IG, the IG clearly doesn't think so, doesn't think it's a problem, clearly has determined that it does meet the urgent concern test. Let's assume that the IG is just wrong. It's just a very incorrect decision for the IG to have made, but the IG made it. Does the DNI have authority under the statute to basically be the one who says, who to cry foul and thereby prevent? It's sort of an interesting question that you can tell they didn't expressly probably contemplate that there might be a situation where an IG makes a whopper of a bad decision. They don't build in some appeal from the IG. What they do is they anticipate that the, the DNI might, might want to comment. Might want to annotate the report, right? To right. say, you know, I agree with this. I don't agree with this. Because here's the thing. I mean, let's, let's be clear. This is just a report to the intelligence committees. And so if the IG is really off his or her rocker, right, presumably the intelligence committees will say, all right, thanks. All right. Yeah, like this is out of scope. So, of course... Yeah, one one can assume is part of what's going on here is at least a sense that whatever this is, is the sort of thing that might then leak out and be very embarrassing to somebody, even if it's out of scope. Nonetheless, it'll still have its impact. Um, so I'm my assumption in knowing a little bit about Joe McGuire, I imagine he really feels like and has been advised. In fact, the IG very much got this wrong. And he's being advised that he has authority to go beyond just commenting, right? right. Um, I think you're right, though, as much as Ooh, I'm I sympathetic like to I know. This <laughs> is paining me to say. Uh, I think you're right that the function of the DNI in this context is ministerial. Well, and indeed, and the very fact that subsection 5C um, allows the DNI to forward, to, 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 to append his own comments Right. right, to the IG's report, I think it makes clear that the DNI is not a veto gate, right? That the DNI, he's allowed, he's, he's certainly allowed yeah, to- He's not ex- being silenced. He's not being silenced. He yeah. is allowed to express whatever opinion he cares to express about the IG's report, but there's no discretion baked into the statute. And more to the point, and just in context, it wouldn't make sense 
under the way the statute's set up to put everything on the IG when the IG is not actually the arbiter. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right about that. I think it's ministerial. So remedies-wise, could you get a writ of mandamus to compel a ministerial action? Can can they make... Uh, can Adam Schiff... Can the, can the House Intelligence Committee petition for a writ of mandamus against the acting DNI to compel them to disclose documents? On, I mean... I mean, I this is Marbury so. versus Madison, right? It's a well, no, it's not Marbury because yeah, yeah. it's it's not it's right. It's, it's it would be in the district court. It wouldn't be in the Supreme Court. No, no, not that aspect. But you know, fact pattern wise, yes. in terms of what relief he wanted, the claim that hey, it's just a ministerial act to convey the uh, commission. So, to the, the so you know, some folks were reacting on Twitter that the proper way, that that yes, the statute is fairly right to say that, but of course, the statute can't override any constant any you know. The, the statute can't force the government to do something it thinks is unconstitutional. And indeed— But no one's making that constitutional well, that's claim. That's the thing. So yeah. President Clinton, when he signed the ICWPA into law in 98, did raise concerns, right, about some of the disclosure provisions in the statute potentially overriding constitutionally grounded executive right. privileges. Um, I think, you know, it has been the consistent position of the executive branch across multiple administrations that some of these provisions could— in appropriate cases, raise constitutional difficulties. But that's not, I mean, at least in the two letters that we've now seen, right, Right. from the general counsel of of ODNI, that hasn't been the argument. So for the moment, that's a red herring. The interesting question, a lot of the, so this question of how does does the House committee uh, get what it's, thinks it's entitled to, may well be entitled to, it seems, if DNI nonetheless won't pass along the document, uh, there's all this talk about, well, you know, subpoena him, then try to hold him in contempt. Um, none of that's going to go anywhere if the Justice Department's not going to come to their aid and nope. they're not going to try to invoke some sort of inherent contempt authority. That's why I think the more interesting question is, well, can they take the power of initiative and file a writ of mandamus action? It's an interesting idea. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not averse, but I, I actually think there is a cleaner, neater solution which is um, there's a lot of distrust, right, between the White House and Adam Schiff. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, and I think there's a lot of tribalism as opposed, uh, with regard to who believes whom on right, this one. Right, just people just picking teams. And, and it seems to me that there's one person in a very compelling position to actually put this, ma- you know, take the, to, to elevate this matter above a partisan squabble, um, and that is the chair of the other intelligence committee, um, Senator uh, Richard Burr. Right, oh, because yeah. Because the, the requirement is that this has to be reported to both intelligence committees, not just the House Intelligence Committee. And so insofar as the act of DNI is shirking his statutory obligation, that's an injury not just to the House Intelligence Committee, but to the Senate Intelligence Committee as well. So do you hmm, – so what happens next? I don't know. I mean, the you know, McGuire has refused to appear for the hearing that he was called to, although um, not – not sort of in perpetuity, just that this was on too short notice. No, right, exactly. That we got to give him a little. Okay, like, fine, but yeah. I mean, a week and a half should be fine. Like next year. Well, he's, he does have things he's got to do. Yeah, and one of them is you know be subject to oversight by this by his overseers, and that doesn't necessarily trump all the other exigencies of uh, his office. Verb, on a day good to, verb. Yes. Um, so I don't know what happens next. I mean, I, I would really, really like to hear from Burr and Warner because I think you know that would lend. One way or the other, right? If Schiff is really acting out of school, and my instinct here, although not always, is that he's not. But um, if Burr and Warner were to were to sort of lend credence, not not to everything Schiff has said, but to the notion that they are they are unpersuaded by the justifications that the government has provided for not complying with thirty thirty three K five C, right? Well, here's you know, a question: Can they ask the IG to testify? 
Closed doors. Classified session. I don't see why not. I mean, couldn't can they just kind of circumvent? I mean, the the statutory the pro- structure the treats is, the DNI sort right. of as a matter of courtesy to position as the transmittal agent for ministerial right. purposes. But the well, IG why not the, just so so? Here's the question: What if the IG? What if the what if the IG's order not to testify? Uh, can the DNI issue orders to the, the IG? The president can. Well, I guess we'd have to cross that bridge when we came to so, it. Then I, there would have to be an assertion of a privilege. Well, that, that's the thing. So, so all this to say, I have no idea what the underlying subject matter of this whistleblower complaint is. Yeah, it could. This all could be baloney. Or, right. or, or, or it could or be, it could be it could the be, craziest could be, thing it ever. It could be small potatoes. It could yeah. be like one, you know, line officer, you know, who for no political reason just did something crazy. Like. Yeah. What I don't understand, it's the reaction, right? The cover-up is worse than the crime. I don't understand. Right. Schiff says, and I take him at his word, this is the first time ever yeah. under the 21 years of this statute yeah. that a complaint that was received by the IG was not forwarded to the intelligence committees. Raises a question whether, to some extent, this might be, the novelty of that suggests a possible lack of staffing and a lack of intentionality to cross quite such a big Rubicon. Yeah. And that would be consistent with the hollowing out yeah. throughout the executive branch, but including now the DNI. Um, and it's not so much a question of somebody sitting around being like, you know what, let's take a stand on this, make a huge issue out of what may be a minor thing. It could be like, wow, I... I we did this. Someone advised me this was a thing to do. Uh, we had no idea this was going to blow up so much, but now that it's blown up so much, we're in an awkward political position does, for does, walking does, does it Does it sound like the Trump administration to walk uh, right. back from something? Well, right, right, right. No, I, I can well imagine that the, that DNI McGuire actually is looking at this saying like, okay, I got some real bad advice. No one told me this was such a big deal. I, I was told I could do this. And now how do we walk this back? And that's a difficult thing. Yeah, but I just I'm the the silence of 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 Burn Warner is is disconcerting. Well, we'll see. Um, it's, as, it's, you, as you said, it broke a few days ago. Yeah. Um, all right. So we mentioned whistleblowing. Is this good segue? We mentioned that in in Marbury versus Madison. But well, should we segue? Oh, speaking of Marbury, wait, yeah. Should, should we segue oh, to Marbury? Marbury? Okay. Yeah. So so um, I, I have to confess that that I uh, last week's discussion of the colon versus semicolon in section thirteen. Um, led a couple of our listeners, I actually got a couple of notes on this, um, to, to go back to the, the scholarship, which I should have done. Um, and here was my mistake, Bobby. You know what I did? I relied on the 1845 edition of the Statutes at Large. Tip, classic blunder. I know. Right I, there, I starting a land a war blunder. in Asia. Just, I, it was a classic blunder. You might as well go into, uh, go into it with death on the line against the Sicilian. Seriously. So in um, the, 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 the short version of this fascinating nerdy, nerdistry pedantry um, is that there actually is meaningful scholarly evidence and argument that the colon in Section 13 is correct. Um, and that the semicolon, which appears in the statutes at large. And so if you go and look at the original... Like that that was erroneous? That that was erroneous. Is and it a Scrivener's error? It might be a Scrivener's error. So Jim Fander, um, who's at Northwestern, uh, a good friend of both of ours, um, go Wildcats. Um, so Jim has an article from 2001 in the Columbia Law Review about Marbury, where he spends some time um, talking about the... 1845 edition of the Statutes at Large and some of the errors that were made by its compiler. Um, And then Jim says, if we actually figure out which version Marshall was consulting, right, in Marbury, it was probably the 1796 edition of a source known uh, by Falwell, F-O-L-W-E-L-L, and that in Richard... Not the Reverend Jerry? No. uh, Not not even spelled (laughs) the same way. Um, And that in Richard Falwell's authorized 1796 edition of the laws of the United States, it is rendered as a colon. Hmm. 
So right. I, I, this is not like, you know, the, the sky does not fall because it's probably a colon, not a semicolon. It's just an interesting reflection on the um, extent to which people as, how do I say, well-educated as I am, um, make mistakes by looking at what we think are the authoritative sources that actually turn out to be authoritative only because, you know, I didn't realize there was an earlier source that was even more authoritative. So it turns out being in the age of print doesn't <sighs> spare us from the Scrivener's error having meaningful impact. Well, and, and, and to, I mean, to, 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 to quote my judge and the first thing she instilled in me when I started clerking for her, don't just read the statute. Read the first, like read the original version of the statute. Oh, that's interesting. We definitely, I got the admonition to uh, don't assume that what the version you see in Westlaw actually reflects Correct. what's in the federal Correct. reports. And I've seen many instances where I don't know if it's optical character recognition or yeah. scanning or what that went wrong, but you occasionally find things. Well, so this is why I mean, both you and I have been, you know, in this business since. Westlaw and Lexis both started adding more and more digital images, right, of yeah. the original sources to their collections. And the dig- I, I find it so much more useful to look at the digital images than yeah. to look at the, the way they're rendered in Lexis and Westlaw when precision is the goal. And I'm just looking quickly to see what it is, Yeah, whatever. But when precision is the goal, I want to see the page scans. In this case, I'd actually gone back and looked at the page scans. I just looked at the page scans from the 1845 statutes at large, and that wasn't the right source. Unbelievable. How My could bad. you? How could you not go back further? It's a Shonda. Well, so we also had a segue there available to us to talk about Edward Snowden as a most ah, famous whistleblower. whistleblower. Yes. Uh, as we noted. As an intelligence community whistleblower. Exactly. In, in, who, who did not avail himself okay, of wait, wait. these so procedures. I have told this story. So I was on a panel with Ken Allard, who was the NSA inspector general during the relevant time period, about a year or so after the Snowden disclosures. And Allard did this whole long spiel about how, you know, Edward Snowden could have come to me. And so I said, well, given that the programs were authorized at the highest level and blah, 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 what would you have done with his complaint? And Allard said, nothing. And yeah, I was like, well, then, then maybe he should have used Equipa and gone to someone else. Well, but that Ken Allard was the guy under Equipa. Was he? I mean, he, he was not the I, the DNI IG, IG. Yeah, but I guess, I don't I, Anyway. Yeah. yeah. So ago. anyways. All right. So what's going on is that Snowden's got a book out. I, I, Yesterday, right? Yeah. I, I'm sure it is. In, I'm sure it's both fascinating and insufferable and in all sorts of things where people will have lots of opinions. That's neither here nor there. Uh, the Justice Department announced a civil suit against uh, Ed and his publisher, Macmillan Publishing, uh, based on the entirely predictable argument that this is a big fat breach of contract. And that he had failed to submit the manuscript for pre-publication review. When you hold the positions he held that put him in a position to know what he knew and is now writing about, you sign very clear, everyone knows this, <laughs> obligations to submit your writing about your job uh, for pre-publication review. In his case, both the CIA and NSA. Obviously, he did not do so. Um, and the the... I guess the built-in penalty provisions are, you know, the revenues entirely uh, end up in constructive trust for constructive the U.S. Trust. government. So, so that so that that makes sense to me with regard to the book, yeah. right? Now so, he's got. There's also a claim for his some some of his speeches for which he's been paid. And I'm, you know, I'm a little. I, 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 I think that's the same thing to me. I don't know. I mean, so I, it de- it depends on. I mean, 
it depends on ex- it depends on exactly what he's saying in the speeches, right? Because the book, you can hold up the manuscript and you can say, here are things that we would have not allowed to go through pre-publication review, right? Sure. Well, all, look, I, I, I'm reasonably confident that whatever – I haven't listened to the speeches in question. But you I'm, haven't? I know. Have you? No. No, I, I'm reasonably <laughs> – I was about to be amazed. Yeah, um, right. But I'm reasonably confident that he was talking about his work at NSA and talking about things that would be within the scope. Just because you're speaking it rather than writing it doesn't change no, the I analysis. That. So, I, just, I just wonder if – I just wonder if – some of the speeches are less about like you know let me walk you through what happened and more about could be and, but and so, so I imagine they left some speeches because they named specific speeches right. uh, I have to imagine and that they, they have transcripts yeah I, I'm, I'm reasonably confident that those would be in scope so I think he's it's a foregone conclusion he's going to lose this it'll be interesting to see if he tries to mount some kind of you know hey it's unconstitutional as applied to my circumstances put the government on trial sort of thing hey the whole thing First could turn it, like you know public concern it could turn into an occasion so if he ever were to end up here facing you know in in a criminal proceeding, everyone's long understood that this would then become a classic moment where the defense strategy would be largely to put the government on trial as much as possible. Right. Will we see some of that here? Uh, was it always a foregone conclusion? Obviously, the publisher had to understand this was likely the result, and they they made a calculation that they still wanted to be the ones. It's sort of a loss leader, right? We are the ones who published it. We ended up not getting any revenue from it, so it's pure loss. But boy, we got the the, the attention for it, and we still sold lots of copies and can say we have a number one best seller Streisand effect now people may be even more interested in reading it Indeed. Um, uh, uh, so pay the government <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> exactly actually um, it, it makes me wonder if like now the right thing to do is actually to post a an uncopyrighted version just on the internet because you're not going to get any revenue anyway. You're not getting any money no, anyway. Well, but Macmillan's not going to like that. Then suddenly their interests diverge because they want credit for whatever the sales are. No, no. So, so stamp, so stamp every page with Macmillan and track downloads. I suspect, I suspect there's not a the, the rankings for book sales wouldn't capture that. Yeah, although, although, well, it's all you know. Metrics are metrics, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this I don't know. Way. I don't know what they try to maximize, but I Re- bet it's reason the number eight thousand six hundred and seventy-five. Why citation counts is a terrible way to assess the quality of scholarship. You know, on that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> One of the most common ways a piece might get cited a lot is when it's wrong. I've always thought it maddening that people focus so much in, in many fields on citation counts without any plausible way to control for that like devastating undermining of the relevance of it. Oh, it's, it also you, there are certain people who get criticized a lot. They're and, cited a lot, and it also elevates like it's all right, it, right. So so right. Not all citations are good. Yes. Um, right. Why would why would we valorize the abstract? This is, this is my long running joke with Justice Kavanaugh, right? That you know, he, whenever we were on a panel, he talked about how he cites everybody else on the panel. Yeah, not all citations are good. And, 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 and I say, but see, he said, he said, I don't usually cite Steve. I said, but see, but see, but see, Steve, <laughs> um, right? But also, it, it creates perverse incentives, right? Oh um, yeah. Some fields are more sort of you know self citation heavy than others. Uh, some people, some people are more <laughs> self citation heavy than others. I just yeah. Anyway, random digression. All right, so. Back to our run of show. Um, Guantanamo. Should we do a quick Guantanamo? Yeah, so visit our friends in Guantanamo. What's happening down so, there? Um, a bunch of things are happening. Um, this is actually a very big week in the 9-11 trial. Apparently, um, we now finally had public testimony on Monday about something that was in the executive summary of the SSCI report, but not otherwise public, which is um, Guantanamo itself was a black site for a period before Rizul, um, and that there were a couple of detainees who actually were moved out of Guantanamo right after Razul and then back in 2006. I, I had missed that. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. And that, you know, that's that's kind of awkward. Um, the other mm. thing, um, Carol Rosenberg had a story in the New York Times. I wait, think- wait, can I come back to that? Just, I was just yes. thinking about it. So Sorry. I, the fact that that was not known is interesting. Well, known-ish. I, it, 
assuming a world in which there are undisclosed CIA detention sites, aka black sites, um, I'd much rather they all just be Guantanamo than that they be in these third countries all around the world. No, I agree. I think I think what, what what's alarming about it, and I wrote this. So I wrote this. Uh, here's a, a blog post I had totally forgotten about until yesterday. Um, I wrote is this one of those post. ones where you did a search for a thing and you're you're reading it and you're like, oh, this is pretty good. Oh, it's me. Yes. No. One. <laughs> one. No. I, I vaguely I remembered the post once someone reminded me yeah, of the yeah. issue. Um, so one of the there was so much in the executive summary of the Senate Torture Report, and it was so easy to miss little little yeah, details. They needed an executive summary for that of the executive summary. Yes. Um, so the. Um, so on page 151 um, of the summary, it says... That speaks volumes right there. Indeed. In early 2005, the Solicitor General expressed concern that if CI detainees were transferred back to Guantanamo, they might be entitled to file a habeas petition and have access to an attorney, right? Um, and so the question is, was there some effort on the, gov- on the government's part to transfer people out of... Leaving aside not bringing yeah. people to Guantanamo. Right. No, escape jurisdiction. Was there an affirmative effort out. to push people out of Guantanamo in order to avoid habeas jurisdiction? Because that actually would strike me as deeply problematic in ways that not moving them to Guantanamo is different. I agree that that's a different kettle of fish. And, and of course, the, the doctrinal rule would be once it attaches, you can't unattach it by moving people around. At least I think that's the right answer. So, so here's what the report says at page 140-141. After consultation with the Solicitor General in February 2004, the Department of Justice recommended that the CIA move four detainees out of a CIA detention facility at Guantanamo Bay pending the Supreme Court's resolution of the case. By April 2004, all five CIA detainees were transferred from Guantanamo Bay to other CIA detention facilities. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So I And then there's footnote 2467. Um, because the committee was not informed of the CIA detention site at Guantanamo, no member of the committee was aware that the Supreme Court's decision to grant certain resulted in the transfer of CIA detainees from the CIA detention facility at Guantanamo to other CIA detention facilities. That's fascinating. Did you say footnote 2467? Yes, on page 440. Oh, heavens. Um, this is, hey, but but come on. Good. Hey, no, that's great. Steve from five years ago. Yeah, Good job putting point. in the details. Good job, past Steve. Seriously, you, 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 this, this Steve, unlike contemporary Steve, did check the 1796 <laughs> edition. Okay, so we have, uh, we have an interesting and comment-worthy uh, dissent from denial of a sua sponte suggestion, presumably their suggestion, yes. of their own suggestion that the D.C. Circuit here on Bank, Kasim, uh, on the question of whether or not constitutional rights attach by well, due process specifically, due, Fifth Amendment due process rights in particular attached to detain non-citizen detainees held at Guantanamo, and it's a chance for uh, Judges Henderson and Rao to make clear that they take a strong Verdugo or Kidez slash Johnson v. Eisentrager view of this issue, and they don't view Boumediene as having changed that a lick. Right. So um, just to remind folks, Kasim is the three-judge panel decision from earlier this summer, where the Court of Appeals, I think, to both of our chagrin, um, although for different reasons, I think we were, we were, we were differently chagrined, um, <laughs> right, um, held that it was an open question whether the Due Process Clause protects Guantanamo detainees, Bobby, and then returned the case to the district court to decide that question in the first instance. Um, so the gist of the so so let's back up. The government did not seek rehearing on Bach of that decision, Bobby, presumably because the decision didn't decide anything. <laughs> right. It's, by the way, this was I think episode one twenty six. Ooh, was good cross reference. Yes. Um, so the 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 government didn't seek rehearing on Bach. However, there's a procedure in the rules of every circuit court where judges can call for on Bach sua sponte, um, and so that's apparently what happened here. Sua sponte uh, on your own or on their own. Um, and in this context, it appears that judges, at least one of Judges Henderson and Rao, Rao being the newest um, D.C. Circuit judge, um, 
called for en banc um, and not surprisingly lost, and then filed this dissent um, from the denial of rehearing en banc. Um, and the basic argument, Bobby, is not only right that um, the strong Eisentrager versus Verdugo Requides view, which, by the way, I think is wrong, um, and I think can't be reconciled with Boumediene. Um, you, you're, are you saying it was wrong when decided? No, no, no. So I, I, I've, as you know, oh, you're saying they're wrong to they're to wrong that to now. they're wrong to portray. No, no. Hold on, let me back up. Yeah. Okay. So Eisentrager was a 1950 case, right? Verdugo Requides is 1990, right? Um, I think it's clear that Verdugo Requides is pretty categorical about the applicability of the Fourth Amendment. Quite so. Um, to non-citizens lacking substantial voluntary connections to yeah. the United States. No Fourth Amendment protections. I don't think Eisentrager is nearly as clear about the Fifth Amendment, and indeed, I think Eisentrager Trager is capable of, as Paul Clement, I think, once said this at oral argument in one of the Guantanamo cases, um, that Eisentrager is capable of many alternative readings, um, right? That And that one of those readings is that the court was only reviewing whether the military commission had jurisdiction over the 21 German nationals, and that once they decided that there was jurisdiction, there was nothing, there, they had no due process claim on the merits. I, I recognize some people take that view. I have a much, I much stronger reading of Jackson, I felt was, it almost, almost remarkable pains to make clear his view that, that it was, it, he seemed almost to be saying it was crazy to suggest that these non-citizen detainees, in those circumstances at least, could possibly raise a could possibly claim to be protected by the Fifth Amendment. But this is this is our fight. In and those so the question is: Is it just a rule for that narrow set of circumstances? Boumedian strongly implies says. no. Yeah, right. No, no, yeah, no, right, right. No, no, yeah. no, no, says yes. Hold on a second. Wait, wait. So I don't disagree with anything you just said. The question is: What does "in those circumstances" mean? And so I don't think. You could well. My view, which I've committed to paper, which people can read if they really are, you know, some that need need to. Sleep. There are masochists out there. There are masochists out there. Um, is that yes? But the, the circumstances in which Jackson was poo-pooing the idea that the due process clause might entitle these guys to some kind of judicial review was a circumstance where Jackson had satisfied himself, as he takes fifteen pages to do in the opinion that the military commission that tried and convicted those German nationals for war crimes was properly seized of jurisdiction over them. Now, I realize it is not self-evident from reading Eisentrager that that's what happened, but it is, I think, a deeply plausible reading of Eisentrager, and it's one that Kennedy largely embraces in Boumediene. I, I agree with the latter. I think clearly that's the interpretation. So for me, Boumediene is more of a revision, Fair. a revisionist interpretation. I think, that, I think that all things you said are true about the context, but I think... I read Jackson's trying to trying to have made a much broader statement about military detainees held outside the United States. Either way, you and I agree right. that Boumedian, right, reads Eisentrager exactly. narrowly. Yeah. Okay. So part of what I think Judge Henderson is doing is something that we've seen DC Circuit judges do in a lot of the Guantanamo cases, which is take shots at Boumedian. That seems to be not convincing to me. The larger point, and this is one that I had raised when we talked about this in episode 126, is the inconsistency between, and you had raised it as well, the inconsistency between the panel saying this has not been decided by our court and the D.C. Circuit's decision in Kiemba 2, right, the 2009 Uyghur case, which seemed to say no due process rights. Right, and so they, they're revisiting that battle. The question is— Sorry, I'm sorry, not Kiemba 2, Kiemba 1. Kiemba 1. My bad. So do you think, uh, can they get cert on this? Um they being the government who didn't even seek rehearing on Bonk? No. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think the government's waiting to lose one of these cases. Right, so then why, why they don't, fight this? Why fight this until they have to, right? right. They're no, not, they're nothing not, practically turns on this. They're not prejudiced. In a future case, they will certainly be able to challenge any holding 
Because you know, if they file for cert now, the opposite writes right. itself. Like, right. why should the Supreme Court prematurely step into a, uh, an issue that had, right? I think the real reason why Judge Henderson and Judge Rao wrote this dissent is so that the right or wrong panel of the D.C. Circuit faced with this issue the next time it comes up could, if it wanted to, point to this dissent to say, no, it's not an open question. Kiemba 1 decided it. We're bound by Kiemba 1, notwithstanding. Right. So it's an argument to future panels, et cetera. Yeah. And then the only thing I would say beyond that is not surprising to me at all that Judge Henderson wrote this or that she feels this way. I am a little surprised that Judge Rao, you know, very early in her tenure on the D.C. Circuit, joins this dissent because she gains nothing from putting her name on it, right? It's still out there either way. It's a pretty powerful signal of where she's going to be on Guantanamo cases. But isn't that, isn't that reason enough to do it? To, to make clear? Why, not, why not play your to But to whom is she signaling? Like, what's what's the value of the signal? No, I, I think from a, from a judge's perspective, if you have a strong view about something and yeah. one of your colleagues is writing about it, don't you, isn't it commonplace, indeed, for judges to say, I, I, I'd like to publicly associate myself with your position? So I think that's true when the position is not one that is already, like, a hyper-divisive position on the court you're serving where there's nothing to be gained by taking by, by putting yourself out there. All, all to say is just... Well, on that, I, I yeah. think that, that suggests to me that she's... She's doing it for principled reasons. She feels strongly about it. And even though it maybe isn't in her own self-interest to do it, she does it nonetheless. And that's fair. And I have no problem. Well, I, I, have, a, I, have, a, I have a not very serious problem with that. I'll just say it is telling and, and a signal that I think will be received by everyone litigating these cases on both sides. Sure. That, you know, Judge Rao is, is, is going to take a very similar view in these cases to yeah. um, the judge whose seat she fills. Right. No, that's, that's exactly right. All right, so we're actually running pretty short on time. Let's do really quick hits on a few other things. Yeah. Um, oh, wait, so on Guantanamo. Sorry, oh, one, yeah, more, sorry. one more super thing. So Carol Rosenberg had a story um, that was published in the New York Times on Monday about the actual cost of Guantanamo, which we had talked about, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a really interesting story, uh, and the basic gist is um, the per-prisoner bill in 2012 at the Florence Supermax facility, she says, was $78,000 for the year. Yep. Right. She says for Guantanamo, it's about $13 million yeah, per that's year pretty dramatic. per prisoner. So back to our conversation from, was it last week? Um, right. About the costs of, of Guantanamo. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's not, it wouldn't cost nothing to hold these guys in a supermax facility. I would even be willing to stipulate it would be more than the average. Right. Because sure. these guys would be, you know, there'd be well, special security measures. Right. But even if you doubled the average for a supermax prisoner, that gets you to $156,000 a year. And versus thirteen, there's, there's no question that once the population got down to a certain size, and it's very small now, it's, it's we're in this lingering few dozens. Um, it's bound to be the case that the cost of the overall facility, which the you know the operations and maintenance doesn't change much, is going to become almost comical. And uh, the, and, I, and that total doesn't include the classified figures. I would certainly want to know on the supermax figure if seventy eight thousand is the is the average overall. You know, it's not a uniform treatment standard within the supermax. Some of these people yeah. would certainly be subject to uh, special administrative measures or SAMs. Sure. I'd like to know that. But, but, but yeah, it's, but, I mean, it's if, bound if, to be the case. Even if it's, it's 10 times the it's average. It's clearly more expensive, no but doubt about that. By a factor that. of like 10 to 20. Probably so. At least. Yeah. Okay. Um, sorry, I, just, I, couldn't, I didn't want to leave that story. Sure. Go no, it's good to close the loop on that. All right, you had a couple other things you wanted but, to hit. Yeah, well, so we were going to talk about the, you know, the drone strike on the, on the Saudi oil facility it, through the lens of what if this were to be treated by the administration as a causus belli or a, a collective self-defense scenario and therefore lead to a kinetic strike. Um, that hasn't happened yet. And uh, 
production's coming back online, I'm increasingly thinking that's not going to happen, at least not without further provocation. So I think we should just let that go for now. Um, Did you want to say anything about the Cora Lewandowski situation? We kind of let the cat out of the bag earlier. So so Cora Lewandowski in this sad excuse for a hearing that happened yesterday, um, had refused to answer various questions, had been instructed not to answer various questions by the White House counsel on the grounds that his some of his conversations with the president were protected by executive privilege. Right. And so is that a thing? Is that a thing? Um, so just to be clear. There, about what was his status at the right. time of those conversations? Corey Lewandowski never worked in the White House. Corey Lewandowski never worked for the government. Corey Lewandowski was on the Trump campaign and continued to serve as an informal political advisor right. to the president. But if Trump calls you up for advice, Snyder, to talk about the New York Giants, which he may well want to do, or to yeah. talk about the New Jersey Generals, if he prefers, yeah. and Herschel Walker, yeah. uh, can he claim executive privilege? That's the theory. Well, actually, of course, those examples make it make it bad, right? He calls you up to talk about national security matters. Right, Steve, talk to me about the Intelligence Committee Whistleblower Protection Act. Equipa. Yeah, I heard it. Keep hearing Equipa. Yeah, What's yeah. The what, deal with that? what is the statute? Um, yeah, that's going to happen. Um, so I do not believe that executive privilege extends. So it's like attorney-client privilege, right? Attorney-client privilege, if there's a third party in the room, right, who's not part of the attorney-client relationship, the privilege is, is waived by having a conversation in the presence of a third party who's not covered by the privilege. And right? if it's an attorney talking to someone who's just not their client at all. Right. There's no privilege. And, and who is not, or maybe the better example, who's not part of the attorney team that represents the client. Right. Talking to like his, his you know, barista. Right, right. Um, that's the better example. Right. Um, Even so, if it's getting legal advice from the very. That's right. Um, so listen, I, I don't mean to I don't mean to demean the facts of the situation. the The notion that executive privilege protects a conversation between the president and a private party um, finds exactly zero support in the case law, and the only support that the uh, Trump, oh well, uh, sorry, the also White House counsel could provide to Lewandowski was a, to my mind, deeply controversial and, as so far as I know, never invoked. 2007 OLC opinion that, in addition to dealing with other stuff, says we also think executive privilege would cover at least some communications between the president and private parties, right? Um, one stray throwaway discussion in an OLC opinion does not a body of law make. And the the point of the privilege is to protect the confidence, is to encourage candor among the president's employed advisors among people who work for the president. True, but don't we want uh, presidents throughout American history yeah. have also turned to outsiders. We want them to turn to outside experts, not saying Lewandowski is a good example, but the rule needs to be. But there are statutes about that. I mean, like the, the reason why we have, for example, FACA, the Federal Advisory Committee Act, is because we want, you know, the president's entitled to confidentiality on his staff. But once the president starts consulting with outside experts, you know, we want some degree of transparency and sunlight in that context. Is, is that true for, say, the, the classic, you know, Trump's on the phone all day calling all right. sorts of people. But more to the point, so we're all his predecessors, yeah. right? And yeah. Those are all I don't think private conversations I, so or not? I, I think they're private. They might be private conversations. Right, I no, but I'm saying like, but, but could, does, FACA doesn't apply to those. No, 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 no. FACA, no. FACA applies like when you are when you have some, yeah, FACA, committee. there's some formality yeah. to yeah. it. No, I, I agree. But I also, I also believe that prior presidents would not believe that executive privilege protected their conversations. Right, that with they could sign. Here's the critical point: if yeah. the person they chose to sp- speak with right. decided to share with others what they're talking about, the president couldn't legally bar them from answering the question. And I, don't, I mean, listen, I don't think he can legally bar Lewandowski. I mean, I think right, you know, the letter tr- Lewandowski. To my, I mean, this is true of McGahn. This is true of Hope Hicks. Right. Like, I don't think privilege is a sh- sword. I think it's a shield. And so this is just cover 
for these folks to not answer questions. It's not actually yeah. like, you know, I would answer it. I, I want to comply, you know, Congress. I right, just, but I'm just, I'm barred. Right, yeah. that's, I, that's baloney. Yeah, um, I think he'll probably lose on this. Well, but but when, right? I mean, so, right. so here we go again. That's the whole game. He's going to have to be held in contempt. There's going to have to be a referral, right? There's going to have to be a fight, like some kind of litigation. And the hope of the administration is whatever else happens, let's make sure all the losses occur post-election. Well, because no matter, you know, if the, if the worst case scenario is that, you know, we're no worse off is just three years from now. Like, I think that's, from their perspective, a win. Oh, absolutely. It is a win. And yeah. this comes back to a recurring theme of the show, which is our courts move too slow on some matters where time is manifestly of the essence. Yep. Um, speaking of timing of the essence, I have to walk out of here in a minute. Um, all the associate deans from the different parts of UT were uh-huh. gathering for our monthly lunch, and I'm the host. Uh, but we can't leave without a little bit of frivolity, and we've got a good one since you surprised me by telling me they're talking about a reboot of The Princess Bride. Doesn't need a reboot. Perfect no. as is. Yes. But there are movies that are not perfect as is where I wouldn't mind a reboot. And my 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 top candidate currently, the Star Wars prequels, one through three. So reboot them with the same just, plot or just ignore them? Erase so, them from history and start over? I think you'd have to make some major modifications. It goes without wow. saying, but I'm going to say it anyways, that Jar Jar should just be you know omitted. Jar, should be put in a Jar Jar? He, <laughs> that's just terrible. <laughs> but well done. Well done, sir. That's good. That was just almost a little layup there for you. Sorry. Yeah. So yeah, I would I would absolutely uh you know, better dialogue, less better dialogue, which is to say any better better acting. Um sorry. Lots that could be improved. I think you could rescue the fundamentals of the plot, um, maybe, but you'd have to make some major modifications. I'd like to see a Star Wars prequels reboot. Do you have anything you'd like to see rebooted? So I th- before Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby died, right, I thought it would have been brilliant to make um, not a reboot of When Harry Met Sally, but a follow-up. Right, uh, like you know, like what happens with their friends? Like or? no, like oh. when Harry left Sally, right? Like you know, oh, like, no, like no. 20, 20 or twenty-five years in. But but we know, but that he can't leave her because we know from the the, the you know the when they're old. Oh yeah, that's right. I'm oh, yeah. sorry, that's right. Okay, so okay, so it's all. Like, so we know they end up back together again. So so when Harry and Sally had uh, mid-marriage troubles, yeah, it worked when, it when out. Harry left Sally, like you know, I, and you had you got everyone, and like you know, you age them in well, place. Isn't right? it more so likely ha- to be when Sally left Harry? Fine, when Sally left <laughs> Harry, um, and and you age them in place, right? And you have them like as you know, as opposed to the twenty-somethings trying to sort of figure out New York in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Now yeah. they're forty-somethings on the far side of like the you know the dot-com bubble and. All right. Yeah, no, I like that. But then Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher died. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Carrie Fisher's been brought back by Industrial Light and Magic for Star Wars movies. I guess they could do it for Harry Met Sally, too. Yeah, but Bruno Kirby, don't mess with Bruno Kirby. Yeah, leave him, leave, leave him beer. Let him rest leave in him peace. Um, don't, don't mess with Mr. Zero. I, you know, don't mess with Mr. Zero. It, well done, Thank sir. you. Thank you. <laughs> Mr. Zero knew. Mr. Zero knew. Mr. Zero knew. Um, <laughs> other movies. Had that, a Giants game, no less. Spaceballs. Reboot. So... Could you, could or, you, or at least make the sequel. Make Spaceballs 3 the search for Spaceballs 2. This, <laughs> that's good. Right? I wonder if the humor would translate very well. I wouldn't want it done unless it was in the same humor, and yet yeah. I wonder how well it would work. Animal House? Could you redo Animal House? Not in a way that would be funny. Yeah. Uh, talk about a movie that doesn't work of outside its, of, of its, its timeline. Time. Yeah. yeah. This is the problem. Like, I mean, the problem is like these movies just, I don't know, um, 48 Hours? You know, so but like you, could, buddy cop you could argue that every buddy cop movie is just a remake of all the other ones. Right. But yeah, 48 Hours was a good one. Although it's the chemistry that matters. Well, so going back to your thing about a uh, hold in place, aren't they doing Coming to America? Are they? 
I didn't you tell me that? Did I? I go look it up, but I gotta run. But your homework is go look up to see whether they are rebooting, not rebooting, but doing a you know coming back to America. Coming to America two? No. Surely it's called coming back to America. No, it's, it's called coming and then the number two America. No. Oh yes. Who is doing this? Arsenio and Eddie, I assume. No! You seem unhappy that this is going to undo a treasured... Release date, August 7th, 2020. Oh my god. <laughs> Coming to America is an upcoming American romantic comedy film. It will serve as a sequel to Coming to America. The film... But wait a second. They they went back. He's the, they, they got married in Zamunda. They are the, they are yeah, the crown Yeah, so they're prince. going to come back on a, like a royal tour, and presumably there's going to be... What, like their son or daughters it with them? It says James and... Earl Jones is in it, so presumably they're yes. not—they're still not the king. Like presumably he's still Prince Akeem. Well, no, it could be—it could be like his Lion King role, where he's speaking. You know, he's—he's he's appearing in you know a mystical sense. Wait, set after the events of the first film, former Prince Akeem is set to be—is set to become King of Zamunda when he discovers he has a son he never knew about in America, a street savvy Queens native named Lavelle, Wait, Jermaine Fowler. Were there events in the original that would give rise to him leaving a son behind that is not with Speaking of when Sally left Harry. Yeah, okay, we're we're tying it all together. Honoring his father's dying wish to groom this son as the crown prince, Akeem and Semi set off to America once again. Oh my I'm very no! I can't wait to go get some McDowell's for lunch. They're ruining it. Let's go visit the golden. They're gonna ruin the arcs. greatest movie of all time. <laughs> I love it. I've successfully gotten you all wound up, and yet we have to stop right here. I gotta go. So we only got to talk about SCOTUS and the and the denial of and and the grant of the stay. Let's close with this, although it's not frivolous. We don't get uh, to talk about Daniel Jones. You're being the start, like the over under of week four. It's yeah, week what was three. my prediction? Um, I don't remember. I think I had it early, so I feel pretty justified. Um, so did Steve's I. Steve's Harvard Law Review uh, forward on, which talks about this. I whole, wish it were the forward. Uh, I'm sorry, what did I call it? The forward, the essay. Uh, yeah, the essay. Uh, talking about um, <laughs> the national injunction. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. The, this whole pattern of going quickly to the court with these uh, jump the queue so type I had complained about how like none of the justices had pointed out that this was a problem. And Justice Sotomayor, with Justice Ginsburg, dissenting from the court's stay of the new asylum ban, said, this is a problem. See, and, Steve. And so now you have to put a but see to them citing. What's the problem, right? So, so it's no longer true that none of the justices have said this is a problem because. But now you get to do the, this incredible thing where you say none of the justices have observed this problem until I said so in one of them. Oh, there it is. No. <laughs> that's not how we, that's not how we yeah. roll. Until, well, then you just change it to until recently. And then you happen to have this coy little citation. I can't believe they're making a Coming to America sequel. I just, I'm, I'm sorry. I, this is going to take up the rest of my day. I am, I'm so happy to have served. Go me. to your associate dean meeting. You have wrecked enough day. You have wrecked enough havoc over Let's here. Let's see what other trouble I can cause. Um, I, we will be back next week when I will still be trying to figure out whether I can even go see this movie. Um, he is at Bobby Chesney, and he's in a load of trouble. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. Um, we are at NSL Podcast. Stay safe out there, I guess. Stay stay safe from raw, you know, wrong thinking sequels to perfect movies. <laughs> Adios.